WOR AM and FM, your RKO general station in New York. Management and labor discuss ways to solve unemployment caused by automation on the Martha Dean program tomorrow morning at 10.15. Guests are Michael J. Quill, labor leader, and John I. Snyder, Jr., chairman of U.S. Industries. Isn't that the 20th century man's ideal to arrive on the scene and just announce, by George, I'm here. <laughs> and the world stops. Everyone stops whatever they're doing. The world stops spinning. The stars stop whatever doing. What is it? The stars are up there, you know. They stop doing it. And it is me. Of course, we're living in the world now of the total ego. Where where uh, the most important consideration that a man ever has is his own crummy, rotten skin. Oh, yes. Oh, very much so. Almost every peace marcher I know ultimately says, Well, I don't want to go to war. <laughs> That's enough of a reason for him. That's enough. Which uh, presents a lot of problems if other people are getting hit on the head down at the other end of the block with clubs with nails through them. So, all right, he's going to send a note or write a long... But perhaps a good scroll would do. I think certainly. I think. Uh, a, uh, I think one of the most effective weapons, don't you, is the petition. I think a good petition stops a lot of wars. I think a good petition. Are there any good hard-hitting petition signers out there? Dynamic activists that sign petitions in you know, and Yes, sir. I'm here. The captain shouted. What was that line there? I'll never forget my old lady looking out of the window. My mother, excuse me, lady, it was my mother, that's right. Uh, yes, indeed. 
She's looking out of the old window there through that jungle of geranium that sustained her low those many years. <laughs> they hadn't discovered cats out in the Midwest. You know about that. Uh, they never knew about French poodles. <laughs> they, were, they were just once in a while a French poodle would show up in Maggie and Jigs. <laughs> they just called a dog with a funny haircut. <laughs> out here it's really a people with a funny haircut. I <laughs> got. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking out the window. They, oh, oh, you don't hear it. My mother looked out. You know she'd look out through those closed lines and old Bruner'd be staggering up and down the stairs and hitting his head on the basement screen door, and she looks out and. Uh, Hello? She says, so, oh, the captain. All right, come on, bring it up there. <laughs> oh, you want to know what she said? It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I got, you don't care, do you? Well, I don't care either. We're all there together. We don't, none of us care, do we? <laughs> Very good, Walt. That was nice. How'd you do that? Try it again. That's it. So, Very good. My Georgie blows the old thing there. da da Oh, you want to know what my mother said? She looked out, and Bruner came staggering home through the rain one day, and it was walking against the wind, so it took him three and a half weeks to get there. And he comes in there, and he's been hitting the jug, the trail on that long line of bottle corks behind them, all the way back. He worked in the roundhouse, and kind of works in the roundhouse, had trouble enough there. And he was on the extra board. You know, Bruner was on the extra board 35 years on the extra board. He was like, uh, you know, utility infielder in, a, in an infield that never one day ever called for an understudy. And so once in a while they'd call him and he'd polish the wheels of the big trains. So old Bruner got to be a jug hitter very early in the day. And I remember one time Bruner's coming home. He's staggering through that yard there, through the clotheslines, knocking down the clothes props. <laughs> Wasn't funny. And he hits his head on the screen door, and, and Mrs. Bruner is yelling around, and she throws down her True Story magazine to face her own True Story. And my old lady says, I am here, the captain shouted as he staggered down the hatch. I am here, the captain shouted as he staggered. Hold it, hold it, hold it. There it is. Now, uh... Is there any of you out there, we will award the brass figligi with bronze oak leaf palm for rising above the ordinary muck of listenerdom. Just sitting out there vegetating. Why don't you get up and do something? For years you've been promising yourself you would really do something. You'd, you'd stop working at that crummy joint, you'd start writing, you'd do something. Why does Zenek have to do it all? Really? Why does Otto Preminger have to make all the pictures and you're sitting out there on your thing there fooling around once in a while with a Polaroid and then you don't even get the films fixed, nothing? I'll bet, I'll, I'd like to know how many guys out there sitting out there, they, 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 they've secretly debated about making this great movie or writing this great novel, you know, or just cutting out. That's enough of an achievement for most guys. Might as well build a pyramid. And, and uh, how many guys are sitting out there who have at least 35 rolls of film that they took all the way back to the time when they were in 12th grade and they never bothered to get them processed or anything. They're just there, you know. <laughs> and you're going to make a movie. Oh, boy. Why don't you get up? What are you doing? It's Look, look it's getting later. Look, it's, it's almost 11.30. It's Tuesday, isn't it? Yeah, Tuesday. What are you doing? At least I'm here. Crying out loud, I'm here. What are you doing? You're sitting out there driving your Mercury around scratching, looking for a drive-in. Yeah, I know. That's not all we're looking for, but... I mean, after all, we do have kids here with us, and they're looking... Oh, what, what, are you, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? What is this? Hey, why don't you get up? Hey, kid, 
Hey, kid, is a kid listening? Why don't you get up out of your... Why don't you... Hey, kid, listen. Why don't you... Why, hey, hey, why don't you go to the stairs, you know, the head of the stairs, if you're a kid up in your pad, you know, in your bedroom or someplace, and go to the head of the stairs. So your old man is sitting there spread-eagled out with a can of Ballantyne next to him, you know, and his shirt off, and he's watching the great Priscilla Lane movie. Why don't you... You know, he's a deep thinker type, and uh, why don't you go to the head of the stairs and holler, Hey, Dad! And there'll be a pause, and you say, Well, for crying out, get a drink yourself. Okay, you're going to get a drink. Say, No, I don't want any water. Hey, Dad! And the old man will find, say, What do you want? Say, Hey, Dad, why is it you never did nothing? Just throw that one down at him. Just let him feel that one. The next time, you know, really, say, Hey, Dad, well, how come you never did nothing? So, what do you mean, nothing? I'm at the office every day, aren't I? Oh, yeah, that's the kidding around. I mean, why did you ever do anything? You know, like Salinger or Preminger, all them guys. Why are you... Come on. Hey, why didn't you ever do nothing, Dad? <laughs> Let him feel that one. All right, and I'll tell you what the old man's going to do. He's going to turn and you say, Well, I'll tell you, son, you'll find out. And then, kid, you try to feel that one. <laughs> That's terrible to have no talent, isn't it? It's an awful thing. Of course, we're living in a world today where no one will concede that no one has talent, you know. That's true. Do you know, I'll, I'll tell you, raise your hand, all you well-to-do middle-class bourgeoisie out there, or bourgeoisie, New Yorker readers out there. Raise your hand and tell me if, if you know of one family among your acquaintance that does not have at least one gifted child. Gifted child is a kid that learns how to talk before he's nine these days, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, George, that's, that's, that's right. Raise your hand. There, there, we spotted one out in Staten Island. Very good. Oh, by the way, for those of you who are interested uh, in, in the technical aspects of the art that we have here with us these days, you know that it's too bad. You know, are you aware that we're blacked out, Walt, in Staten Island? Sure, the mafia. No, it's the truth. Uh, nobody in Staten Island hears us. It's funny. I, I uh, No, it's the truth. It's the truth. I've been on now over seven years. And uh, beginning at about uh, 11.10 or thereabouts, WOR is blacked out completely in Staten Island because of the dreaded black hand, the mafia. Uh, there are one or two people who listen in basements and things like that with wires, but uh, outside of that, it's a total blackout. Although WABC comes in very strong, very strong. All the good guys come in very strong over there. <laughs> They're very good. And they're very loud and very fast. You don't quite know what they've ever said or anything, if anything, but nevertheless, it's the ultimate in communication. So, so uh, raise your hand out there. I'd like to contact one Staten Island. All right, one more, Walt. Just one more little shot. Up there you go. <laughs> da, da, da. I am here, the captain shouted as he staggered up the... No, it's down the hatch, isn't it? Down the hatch, that's right. Yeah. I'll award the brass figligy with bronze oak leaf palm. If you can tell me the name... Where is that from? That great quotation. I am here, the captain shouted, as he staggered down the hatch. That is not Conrad. Conrad, I never knew you knew anything about Conrad. You know Conrad, really? Actually? Gee, that takes reading. You know, it's a funny thing about reading Conrad. That is not like reading, you know, these, these little ipsy-pipsy books here. You've got to read Conrad. He, he, he lays it out. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, hi, how are you, how did you get in? 
What is this? Is this friends of the management? Uh, please escort them to the next room for one moment while I get on here, okay? <laughs> Boy, I can always tell friends of the management. They look very rich and their glasses shine. Well, well uh, speaking of uh, rich people, this was W-O-R-A-M and F-M, New York. And uh, we'll be here for a while. And uh, we are truly living in a society. Of course, it's the world. It's, it's all the world. The whole, the whole world is getting hung up. Uh, there's no question on that. It's, it's getting hung up primarily on itself. It's a very interesting problem. Have you been listening to what the Chinese have been saying about the Russians? Well, there you go. This is Orwell. And, uh, oh, yes, Orwell. They're very mad because it looks like the Russians are making peace. And as everyone knows, peace is war. Anyone who is a good forensic student, then, oh, yes, it is. It's a rottenest thing you can do in this day and age. I'll never forget one time standing, what's that main uh, street there in eastern Berlin? There's a big street there, and all the houses look like, I'll tell you, all the houses look like the kind of houses they would build out in Queens if they could get away with it and if there weren't zoning laws. They look terrible. Uh, Stalin Alley, you know that? Yes, Stalin Alley, yes. It's a, oh, boy, if you think you've ever seen deadly uh, architecture. If you think those Esso stations look terrible, you ought to go out there and look at Stalin Alley for a while. It's fantastic. It's just really something. Well, I'm standing there on the street there, and they have a big, a big celebration. And uh, the band comes down the street, about 400 bands, actually. And they had a cart, and on the cart there were two rockets. Walt, you'd like that one. It was a very wonderful peace parade. They had a couple of rockets there. And they had at least 17,000 tanks, all of which were mounting the 90-millimeter recoilless uh, semi-gas elliptically operated uh, uh, <laughs> rifle type. It's a peace gun, really. It shoots peace in the people. And it was very nice. And uh, it was uh, they, <laughs> all of these two were. They had flash guards on them. I, nothing looks more deadly than a 90-millimeter gun. Uh, on the top of a tank with a flash guard. Boy, there's something looks that really looks tough. Uh, because, you know, have you noticed that a dog with a muzzle on him looks tougher than a dog without a muzzle? It should be the opposite, but it's, it really isn't that way. And, and these 90-millimeter guns came along. I guess they're 90s. They look like 90s, I think. Uh, yeah, they look like 90s. No, they look like 90s. Maybe, no, they can't go as high as a 105. That would be too much peace for one man to fire off at one time from the average tank. It's a t <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. I, oh, I guess some of them are to 105 there. Sure, I guess that's the water-cooled type of peace. And so uh, these these tanks, there must have been about 45 of them rattling along along Stalin Alley. And, and they have the treads, you know, and the treads make a lot of noise and everything. And in back of them, there must have been at least 17,000 troops, all of them with the little round hats, you know, the funny little hats that they have, that, uh, very deadly-looking hats, strangely enough. They look like bowling balls with feet. And they're, they're walking along. Oh, yes, very peaceful people. And they had the, all the, the Mausers. I think they're Mausers. Big Mausers slung over the backs there in the packs. And the, you know, the kind of packs the German army always has with the big loop uh, felled. Uh, what, what is that pack they call there? It's full of peace leaflets, uh, you know the one. It's all packed up there. And, they're, yeah, they're marching along there, 85,000 of those guys. And then there were 17 platoons of girl gymnasts. Now, they all mounted 90-millimeter guns, too, or at least from the from the angle I saw them, it looked like they did. They they, they have a very interesting profile, those girls. They're, they're large, tank-like ladies, and they wear white. They all wear white blouses and black skirts. I guess those were skirts. They're black skirts. And sensible shoes with spikes, hobnail spikes, very sensible shoes. 
<laughs> uh, the better to kick you in the right places. Uh, of course, you know, you never know when, when, you, when you run up against a, when, when a peacemonger wants to put peace across. You know, you've got to use everything you've got, sharp elbows, uh, sharp shoes and all. Well, these, uh, these ladies went along there. And I, uh, did, you, did you remember the pictures they used to have of the Hitler, the, the, the gangs with all the, uh, you know, doing all the push-ups and all that stuff? That was peaceful crew. They, they, they wear the white things. It's something of strength through joy or whoopee through fist fighting or something of that nature. I don't know what it was. Some, some kind of a nutty slogan like that. And these people had big signs, see, and it said peace on it all over there. Peace. I could make a terrible pun here. I'm not going to do it. It's not that late yet. That's, <laughs> I wish I was on during the long john hour. I could get off with some of these. But, but they had big signs that said peace, you know, peace. And I'm standing there, and I'm feeling, you know, very peaceful at that moment with those tanks going past and everything. And, and the clanking and the rattling, and the people were all yelling peace. They were, they were all ready to go out and fight for peace. Well, I began to realize then, at that moment, well, I had suspected it earlier, that our world is built on ourselves. You know, each guy has his own figuration. He's, he's got everything figured out. That as long as it works okay for him, it makes the scene. That's it. It, it makes the scene. And uh, you can today, if you so desire, you can interpret any word you want to fit your own local situation. It'll be very good, very all right. How many times have you heard uh, big businessmen, for example, here in the country, uh, get up before some Senate subcommittee and they have to explain why the prices are 74,000 times higher than it costs them to make it? And they start, they start coming out <laughs> with, with their analysis of what is meant by uh, the good of the American economic being. You know, it's a very interesting definition. So it goes on and on, and it's, it's all part of the same thing. It's a kind of self-hypnosis. Very, uh, have, you, have you seen any hypnosis parties lately? You know, that's the latest kick. Are you aware of that? Oh yeah, they've oh they've all given up pot years ago. That's greasy kid stuff. Oh it is. That's true. Pot, all that stuff has gone down the drain. Of course you always get busted for pot, so that, that kinda adds a little <laughs> you know, it gets a little uncomfortable there later on when you're down in the tombs, but uh <laughs> it's a bad place to have a hangover. But nevertheless, uh the the newest kick among this nutty world, it it started in some place in Central Europe, the newest kick is is mass hypnosis. So you go to this guy's party, you know, there's a pad, and there's always one pusher in a party. Now, the pusher in this kind of a party is a hypnotist. It's a kind of a hypnotist, you know, and you go there, and they dangle little things, and the next thing you know, everybody is bombed out of their skull with being hypnotized. Now, they put on this music. Yes, they do. They put the music on the LP, you know, they put it on the hi-fi, whatever kind of music you want for accompanying a trance. You put it on, and then everybody, you know, well, you know, what? Well, that depends on the hypnotist and the kind of party, actually, what? Don't ask me leading questions. What happens in a hypnotist party gets very interesting. Well, now, this has taken off, and, uh, and of course, most people, oh, I know it's, uh, it's terrible. This is, the total, this is the total statement of the anti-intellectual in our world today. Of course, it's all being done by intellectuals which uh, adds a kind of a Philippe to the thing. But uh, this has taken over, uh, Eddie, wait just a minute, this has taken over in areas that really present a, a, a beautiful example of the philosophical paradox that is confronting us today. In other words, 
which side of your being is the most operative side? Which is the most important side? Your brain, like the conscious thinking that you do, or the subconscious activities that you pursue? Or do you think that they're the same? Forget it, Dad. In fact, for years, man has, has believed that he's a butterfly. Beautiful creature flying higher and higher, and if only, if only society wasn't so rotten, everything would be peaceful. And uh, that's, that's the Salinger view. You see. That, that's, that's the Holden Caulfield syndrome. Well, now that's, that uh, totally ignores the fact that Holden has pimples too. Uh, they, they never possibly conceived that. Well, now, the question rises here, though, philosophically here. Let's, let's, let's be philosophical here on a Tuesday night. Which is the most operative side? Now, I remember a friend of mine having a father. Now, we all have, you know, we all have friends who have fathers. And oddly enough, I would like to point this out for what it's worth, that in almost every case I have seen, we usually consider or in many cases define fatherdom by somebody else's father rather than our own. We usually have a friend who has a, who has a fantastically more official father than our old man, you know, who has trouble with blowing up beach balls and all that kind of stuff and is not really, not really, doesn't really make the scene all the way. Well, I had this, this friend, uh, and his father was, was a true glowerer. He was the kind that had purple jowls, you know, that, that kind of, and he was a, 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 a screamer of the worst, most unbelievable order. He had little beady eyes, and he seemed to me to be the epitome, and he always will always be the epitome of father, capital letters, and a real tough boy. And, and he, was, he was the kind of man who, when he got behind a car, well, he would take us to school, you know, that kind of thing once in a while, he would drive like he was out of a skull. He'd get in his car, he'd shift gears, and away we'd go. And I'm sitting there hanging on the old, you know, the back end, and the, the kid is sitting next to me. And it was the kind of father around whom everybody was afraid to open his trap. You know, just never said a word. You didn't say anything around him. He did any talking there was, he did it. It was not talking. Any shouting there was, he did it. You know, that kind of, Paul, go to store! You know, that kind of stuff. Get up here and help your mother with the dishes! There'd be a dead silence. You'd hear the sound of feet running, and <laughs> water pouring. And, and, and I remember many a time we'd be out playing a ball game, and we'd be right in the middle of the third inning, a crucial game, and you'd hear the screen door slam. You'd hear, Paul! That's it. End of game. Schwartz would drop everything, and you'd see him cutting out of center field like a shot. And he would go through the weeds around the back of the house, and that'd be the end of him for about four or five weeks. Well, that, that, was the, that was the kind of scene he was. Yet, now, now this is the, is, the, is the thing that I'm getting at. We have all known this kind of fanatical, insane father. Absolutely a fanatic. In fact, to, to be perfectly honest, this kid joined the army two years before he had to go to get out. Literally. And when there was a war on, as a matter of fact. And, and uh, oh, that, that has all kinds of... Oh, yes, he did. So it was that kind of life. Yet... His old man was the only man that I had ever known in our whole, you know, the circle of acquaintances, people in our whole neighborhood, who was truly a fanatical religious type. Oh, yes. Oh, he was, he was, so, he was always raising funds and all that kind of stuff, and he had signs on the back of his car, 
you know, with slogans, religious slogans. He had a whole business going there. I'm sure that at 2 o'clock in the morning, he was the guy that would jump out of the car with a, with a whitewash brush, you know, and a big jug of paint and, and write a big thing on a rock or something, you know, that kind of thing. Some giant religious slogan with an enormous exclamation point at the end. And that means you! Oh, sinner! You know, he's yelling at everybody. Everybody else is a sinner. He defines the sinners as everybody else, especially kids. Well, yeah, that's, that's the way he defined it. Well, I, I was fascinated by that. And uh, being a kid, I, I began to associate official religion with that kind of guy, you know. That that's the way it was uh, when when you were when you were deeply involved, and that's, that's just the way it, it, it was always going to be. But you know, now today we have come into an interesting world where I wonder whether or not a person who has to who has to get bombed, like Aldous Huxley, a lot of people, a, a person who has to get himself involved in say pot. Uh, for those of you who are uninitiated, that means that means marijuana. For those of you who have to get involved in some kind of drugs, to assure yourself you're having a good time or to have a good time. Now, the question arises whether or not a person who has to do this is capable of it. And he, he has to use some kind of artificial creation of the semblance of happiness or joy. Now, that's an interesting question. Is a person who is hung on movies or on the drama, let's say a person who goes to the theater every night or who reads incessantly books, novels, is a person like that capable of actually existing in their own realm? Or must they always exist in the fictional realm of Geraldine Page and Rip Torn? Now, you see, that's another kind of pot, you understand. Uh, are they capable of, of having a life of their own that is exciting so much so that they can't take time off from it to go and see uh, Paul Newman making the scene with uh, Audrey Hepburn or somebody? That's a good question, you know. You know that, that, that most of the artists I know, if, if, it's of any, if it's of any consequence to you, most of the artists I know who are really deeply involved in their life, I mean, they, these guys don't have enough hours in the day. They, uh, they can never see the sense of going to a movie. They never go to plays. Now, is it because they're slobs, anti-intellectuals? Don't they, Galby? No, not at all. It's because they find themselves profoundly bored sitting in a movie or sitting in a play, uh, being forced in a way... To, to suspend their own life, which they find very exciting, and it's, 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 uh, as I say, it uh, usually doesn't have enough time in the day, to suspend their own life to watch other people's imitation fake lives, phony lives. These are totally fictitious lives being lived here, and usually fictitious things are being said. And the, the, So this is another kind of pot. Other people do not believe that their life is real. The only time they they see reality is when they're going through the sacred the sacred gates of the Morasco, and they are entering they are entering Tennessee Williams's world. Isn't it funny how they call it Tennessee Williams's world? I mean, is, doesn't he live in the same world you do? Or you'll hear people talk about Eugene O'Neill's world. Oh, come on, you know, it's 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 a separate it's another kind of hypnosis. Well, do you have my go gothic music? I'm a gothic music up here. Now, the question arises, before, before I'll give you the cue, Eddie. The question arises, before we go into this, is a man who must hypnotize himself to believe something, does he believe it? 
Now, that's a good question. Uh, uh, about two or three years ago, oh, how long ago was it? Uh, just about six months ago, we had a bit on the show here where some guy over in Jersey sold some kind of storm doors. You remember that story? He had, some, he had storm doors, and they weren't moving. And so he brought in a salesman. He had a hypnotist hypnotize nine of these guys, and they went out and burned up the track. The only trouble is, by the end of the week, it would wear off. So they had to bring him in and, and give him another shot of hypnotism. Of course, nobody said what happened to their private life. You know, he's sitting there. Can't you just see him sitting there at dinner? He's bombed out of his skull. You know, his eyeballs are spinning. And all he can dream of is storm doors. And they're feeding him with a spoon. You know, and he's sitting there. And then every once in a while, they, 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 they open the door and they send him out. And he goes, boom, out into the neighborhood again, madly selling, selling storm doors. Because, uh, you know, hypnotism does a lot of things to you. The question is now that, that I have to ask, do these people believe in them or are they hypnotized into believing in them? They only believe in them while they're under the hypnosis. Uh, oh, and one more thing has to be said. You know, there's, an, there's an, a, a wonderful myth around. And the myth is that if you're under hypnosis, you wouldn't do anything that you wouldn't do when you're not hypnotized. Forget it, Dad. That is a myth of the first order. And any good hypnotist who is not doing a vaudeville act will tell you quite the opposite. Now, I know I'm going to get a lot of angry letters from Long John listeners to say, I'm sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> well, uh, so the question arises, you know, it's a very interesting philosophical question. Now, the reason I brought this up, how often do you, uh, you know, when you, when you read the back pages of newspapers, you often come across, boy, the most wild stuff. It should be on the front pages, you know. It's far more important than, than somebody arguing about a three-cent raise down at the electric light bulb plant, you know, that kind of stuff. And yet that's front-page news all the time. In the back pages is where the stuff really roars, and particularly in out-of-town newspapers. Uh, the Washington Post, for example, has just an ordinary paper, you know. It's, it's a, but, but somebody sent me a piece from the Washington Post and it's from, of all places, the religious page, which usually is a pretty calm page, except for the thunder that roars every Sunday. You know, uh, which, uh, uh, it's usually just a description of what the Reverend R.W. McGillicuddy said yesterday about damnation, and uh, modern man is going downhill. Either that, or you will find the opposite guy once in a while. The, the, the Reverend L.W. McIntosh maintains that today's youth are far more moral than any youth before. And then he'll quote Colden Caulfield or somebody like that. Oh, yeah, there's that new hip type, you see. These guys usually have much larger congregations than the others. And the, the crowd comes in trailing pot smoke and applauding, and they're ready to go. I, I remember one time, remember the piece? In the, this is the new fun religion. It's very little, it has very little to do with, with hell and damnation or any of the rest of it. Remember, remember here a couple of months ago, one of the magazines had this about this minister that has the Thunderbird, the white Thunderbird, and the wild swinging-looking chick for a wife? The whole scene, you know? He spends all of his afternoons down at the beach surfboarding with the crowd. I presume inculcating them with morality. <laughs> I'm curious about that, you know. Uh, I could think about it. would be intriguing, just, just as another philosophical question, I wonder if any one of the, of the people during the great period of the, of, the, uh, of the creation of the religions that most of us live under, uh, any of the people who were really the, uh, at the time when, when this 
concept was a really new concept, sweeping the whole world out from under. It, it you know, it swept the world. Uh, the concept of Christianity and Judaism swept the, the Western world just like a fantastic wave. It was like it was like communism suddenly sweeping the world. You know, all no, truly the same kind of thing, where where millions of people are are becoming part of it. And, and it just really swept the world. Of course, there were arguments and there were fights and people were, some were against it, some were for it. But the intriguing thing would be to, if somehow, if you could bring somebody back, say, who, who was a monk, we'll say, a real, a real ascetic, uh, who, uh, was, was in a monastery somewhere, say, in, in England during the, uh, well, let's say the year about seven or eight hundred, when, uh, when they, when they really, when they were really working at it. To bring him back and uh, and have him sit in on Billy Graham, uh, no, really, you know, uh, it would be a fantastic thing. What a what a what a what a uh, what a premise for a short story. Uh, to have him, to have him, you know, just 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 go to different places. To have him, to have him go on Easter Sunday <laughs> up Fifth Avenue, you know, and and drop in uh, over here at the big churches on Fifth Avenue, and and. And, and then tell him he wouldn't know what it is. Of course, he would have no concept of what this what, what this is all about. He wouldn't even know it had anything to do with with his uh, work. You say, and then to tell him after it was all over, after he'd seen all this stuff, don't even tell him beforehand what he's looking at, and then tell him. It'd be a fantastic thing. Just just a little thing to to think of. Listen to this story now. You got you got this now. Now the question. All right, here, bring it in. At All Souls Memorial Episcopal Church, a cathedral in Connecticut Avenue's northwest, the Reverend Joseph Witkowski of Pittsburgh put 60 people into a hypnotic trance that left them conscious but inanimate. The demonstration by the Reverend, the author of the pastoral use of hypnotic technique, was in a small, darkened auditorium. The audience, composed of all age groups, was briefed on conditioned reflex therapy, creation of new habits through hypnotic suggestion. The only props were eight illuminated stars, hanging from the draperies, and a tape recording of Canon Witkowski's voice, which began, Please do as you are told. These exercises have been developed to cultivate the conditioned reflex for deep habits in our personalities and to bring you success and happiness. Make yourself comfortable. Close your eyes. As you begin to relax, you will sharpen your ability to accept constructive suggestion. Notice your progressive relaxation. Now, inhale in, 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 breathe deeper, deeper, and deeper still. 
you are growing relaxed. Eventually, you will associate relaxation with exhalation. Exhale. Breathe in. Exhale. Breathe in. Soft, barely discernible music began to accompany the pleasant-sounding, easy-paced voice, which continued. Now, open your eyes and continue to listen. Concentrate your visual attention upon the star. It is a wonderful symbol directly identified with our Lord. Give your undivided attention. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. To the star. Stare steadily. Look at it. Do not take your eyes away. Inhale deeply. Exhale. There. Command yourself to relax thoroughly. Henceforth, tell yourself to relax upon exhaling. Every time you exhale, relax. Observe your calm feeling and experience your inner peace. Exhale. Inhale. Now your legs feel limp, numb, very numb, and relaxed. Your legs are heavy, very heavy, like lead and numb. Your body is becoming numb and quite limp. Your arms are floating. Just floating above your head like water. You are feeling satisfied. You appear to be flying or sleeping on a cloud. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. Everyone was still. Thirty-five minutes of the fifty-minute demonstration had elapsed. 
the audience had physically changed. Eyes were relaxed, hands rested lightly upon laps, legs were outstretched. Five persons gave an appearance of deep sleep. The others were completely relaxed, entranced. The canon continued. You have a growing ability to listen to others, absorb their suggestions. Yes, the Lord does not wish you to hate the world which he made. Exhale, inhale, breathe deeply. God expects you to reach a measure of happiness and success in this life. You will be successful. Inhale, exhale. When you seek a good, believe that God is giving as you are asking. Your desire for happiness is good. Let yourself drift into your happy state of relaxation. Exhale. Let these ideas go deeply into your subconscious. Exhale. Inhale. Yes, you will be successful and happy. Inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. The cannon's voice had progressively slowed down. The cannon assured the people their experience with exercise a growing control over the behavior and give them increased confidence. And then, proceeding to awaken the audience, the cannon concluded... I will now count from one to five. One. When your eyes open, you will feel wonderful and refreshed. Two. You are beginning to awake. Three. You can now open your eyes. You feel alert. Four. Notice how relaxed you feel. Five. You are now awake. And how wonderful you feel. The audience. You notice they don't call them a congregation in the article. The audience gradually blinked its eyes. They stretched and yawned and headed for the refreshment table. Now, how about that for a front-page story? (laughs) It was way back on page 74 of the Washington Post. 
<laughs> I suspect, believe me, about a, a thousand years from now, when they are examining the strange twistings and turnings of 20th century man and his ever, ever, ever increasing search for total subconscious unconsciousness. Somehow, if we can all be bombed out of our skull, we'll be totally happy, apparently. Ever reaching, ever striving, keep your knees loose, Dad. And by the way, while you're, while you're doing that, just, just focus your eyes on the chandelier above you and watch it as it swings back and forth, back and forth. Oh, you'll be happy. Gene Shepard will be here with his iconoclastic acts again tomorrow night at 11.15. This is WOR Radio, your station for news.